This is It's a Long Story, a Sydney Opera House podcast that uncovers the lives and stories behind the ideas. Anxiety is essentially the yearning that we have at our core to know what the hell life is about. As a hugely successful journalist and writer and the founder of the international diet and lifestyle empire I Quit Sugar, Sarah Wilson might seem like the poster girl for perfect health. Yet, anxiety and bipolar disorder have been with her throughout her life and career. Growing up in rural Australia in a big, poor family, she has always been driven to overachieve, editing national magazines, hosting the first season of MasterChef, writing a series of best-selling cookbooks and amassing a small army of online followers. In her book, First, We Make the Beast Beautiful, Sarah gives an unflinchingly honest account of her struggles with mental illness and how anxiety doesn't have to be a negative force in your life. Sarah Wilson, welcome to It's a Long Story. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's get back to your childhood. You grew up in remote poverty, really, didn't you? Yeah. um, It's funny, my father has always, he's, you know, obviously a proud man and did his absolute best. And, um, and, you know, I realise now that the extent to which he did his best. Um, But he's always said, you know, Sarah... We weren't poor, we were broke. And I get what he means. He means that we poor poverty is a is a can be seen as a as a mentality. And we didn't have that mentality, but there certainly was no money. <laughs> what, what what sort of mentality is poverty? Um I think in my father's mind it was a notion of giving up, you know, and sort of accepting where you're at and um almost like a sort of sinking into the situation. And that certainly wasn't my dad's way of doing things. As the eldest of six kids, what was that like growing up? Did you have responsibility for your younger brothers and sisters? That was my job. Like, there is not a photo of me that exists out there without a child on my hip, you know. And every single picture is with kind of an entourage of children sort of just following me around. So, yeah, I I mean, it was it was we, in the mornings um, on weekends we just took off and we, we were feral, you know. We were really feral. Because you're um, in the country, right? We're in the country. It was just it was a rural area. It wasn't a farm. We had goats that were tethered because we couldn't afford fences, and for meat and for milk. And um, Dad rode a motorbike into town to go to work. He worked in the public service. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we had some very grandmothers and grandparents stay with us because, you know, at various times when they're unwell. But, yeah, it was just myself, my brothers, and, and a lot of dirt. But I did have a lot of responsibility. Like mm. the kids, it was Sarah and the kids. How's that, that affected you as, a, as an adult? Um. I am overly conscientious, overly responsible, and um, I, I struggle with it at times because I, I just it's it's in my DNA, and I don't know how to pull back. And I know that I can suffocate some people around me with my overzealous, caring, and desire just to enable. You know, mm. also having grown up with boys, we played boys games and it was boys rules and it was robust and it was, you know, there was no time for kind of feelings and emotions. You know, we got used to ebbing and flowing with each other. We we didn't do group sports. We didn't do after school activities. We were ostracised because we were a little bit weird um, because we couldn't afford the school camps or the, the extra bits and pieces. Um and certainly, you know, there was the way we dressed, 
you know, it was all stuff from St Vinnie's and worse than St Vinnie's. It was the stuff that St Vinnie's rejected because my grandfather's work job was to tear them up into rags for mechanics. So he would just bring out a few bags for us of, of clothing. So, I mean, right. I, I realise now it all sounds a little odd. I mean, I don't think 30 years ago, you know, 30... 35 years ago, it was extraordinarily odd. But then we didn't know, did we? But did you have a sense ever at school, you know, in year seven, year eight, year nine, did you have a sort of sense that you were from a less... Yes, of course. Mm. And um, most of the kids at school like to make me very well aware of it. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I was, but I developed a hardiness and I have a phrase in my head which, healthy or not, remains with me and it's Sarah Wilson doesn't need that. <laughs> and um, I th- I'm sure one of my parents said it to me at some stage, but it was kind of what rallied me on. So while everybody was off, I don't know, interested in boys, I was studying you know, and I just went, right, I'm just going to win this game. And um, I don't know that I was a particularly bright kid, but I became a bright kid. So overall, I'm finding it hard to gauge if I were to put your childhood into the happy basket or into the not happy <laughs> basket, which which way I'd go. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't happy. Um, I will say that with um, a full awareness that my parents did their best. And of course, my brothers, they had a different experience. But my Childhood was overlaid, obviously, with anxiety from Mm. a young age. And I think that that came through from probably my um, position in the family. Mum and dad were young when they had me. Um, There's all kinds of reasons, but also there was a hereditary factor as well. Both my grandmothers had quite horrible anxiety. Um, And I cover off all those factors in First We Make the Beast Beautiful and sort of conclude, and this is the conclusion I came to in my mid-20s, was, you know what, I don't care where it comes from, what am I going to do about Mm. it? And that's, that's sort of the line... I draw, and you probably notice, Edwina, I don't actually go into all that much about my childhood in the book or my family kind of interactions. In fact, my family don't really feature at all in the book. One of the things you do say about your family in the book, though, is uh, your father was an anxious person um, Mm. and your mother was stable. Yes. How did that dynamic play out in their relationship? Um... They are in love with each other still to this day. They are kind of so yin and yang, some might say codependent, and I think that's kind of that generation in some ways, you know, and they rallied together. So they supported each other no matter what. So there was the mum and dad entity and then there was the kids entity. And I think big families often work out that way, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, whereas smaller families there's more of an interaction between the kids and the parents. And what's your relationship with them like? Um... That's an interesting question. I would say I've become very close to Dad over the years um, and especially actually since this book. Look, I don't think they'd mind me saying this. I've kind of been a bit full-on and weird for them, you know? I think I've just pushed boundaries for a very long time and I continue to do that in their eyes and I think it can be very difficult for them because they're very humble, private people. Mm. So, And so those boundaries are about... You know, you live in quite a public life and you um, being, you know... Quite vocal yeah. about things, yeah, and transparent. And and the bipolar part of things is something that's very hard for them and a lot of people around me where up until I wrote the book, 
it was known amongst my loved ones that there's this diagnosis and and that kind of, and then they'd see me kind of do stuff that didn't really oh Sarah's off on one of her things again but um I think the book solidified it because when you read a book through some through uh, the objective reader's eyes suddenly things become a bit more real mm. you know you're not just listening to Sarah bleat on again you know it's kind of it becomes real and so I think um that shifted things a little bit. It shifted things for me as well because... You'd laid it all out. I'd laid it all out, yeah. And I think people, a lot of people went, ah, okay, we get it. And so I say this in the book that sometimes a diagnosis, like I have problems with the notion of just slapping a diagnosis on someone because the whole book is about how the issue is more complex than Mm. that, right? But especially when you're a teenager and also at different times in your life, a diagnosis can actually assist to the extent that you can park everything on a shelf which reads bipolar or OCD or whatever it might be and you can just leave it there for a moment. Mm. So when you say, you know, Sarah's off on one of her things. Yeah. What sort of things were they? What did your early manias look like? Well, it was, it was, this was the phrase in the family, oh, oh, Sarah's bored again. And that was... <laughs> that was the danger, the warning bell, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I'd sit up in trees a lot. So I'd sit up in trees and wail and weep and read the Bible. Um, <laughs> and um, I invented things. Like I, I had a business at the age of 12 and I, you know, had a... Was that library bags? It was library bags. The library bag magnet? And furniture, and, uh, doll's house furniture. And I also um, made sort of like little cards with poinsettias and wildflowers That you draw? I'd draw and then I'd package them up in cellophane in packs of five and sell them in a gallery. Right. Um, so, but the library bags were the real, the real money spinner. <laughs> <laughs> and I painted them with some baking elephants and, you know, whatever. I'm not even that artistic, but God damn it, I was going to... You were entrepreneurial at I least. found a cheap roll of calico, you mm-hmm. see, and so that's where it sort of stemmed from. Um, so there was that and then I was always wanting to create things and invent things and I would go a bit spare with boredom you know and frustration and and then there was the religious piece as well constantly at my parents about religion and the meaning of life and and all of that and they just wanted me to go to church on a Sunday and be done with it you know where did that come from that spiritual quest you know the spiritual side and probably the mania developed at a similar time in my life and also I paralleled it also with my obsession with numbers mm. um counting in counting an OCD way right and the OCD stuff all started at about the same age 11 or 12 um 11 to 13 really um so it's an interesting parallel I would say that there's they're not unconnected mm. you know I, and and today as well I I believe that anxiety is essentially the yearning that we have at our core to know what the hell life is about. And when that anxiety is not met and held and steered, it can spiral off into kind of mania, addiction, um, all kinds of symptoms. Um, However, the beautiful journey that it can take you on is it turns out that that struggle is the very thing that brings you back to an inkling of the answer that you were searching for. 
So along with all of the various entrepreneurial ventures that you launched in your childhood and teens, you also had a crack at modelling. Oh, yeah. How was that? <laughs> that that very uh, uh, blink and you miss it. Um, it was, it was, it was um, interesting. I mean, I didn't care about it. Um, and I can honestly say that one of the things I can say about my mother is that I've never seen her diet. I've never seen her say, oh, I can't eat that. And nor have I seen her put on weight or lose weight. She's just been... You know, she's actually got a really, really balanced approach to food and a love of food. And I think that was actually a really good influence um, for me. Um, so modelling, I entered into it and I had no sense of what I looked like. I just went, oh. I literally got discovered in the bra department of what was called Grace Brothers back then um, and had a Polaroid photo taken of me. And I honestly didn't know what was going on. But then I saw the dollars. And yeah. I was like, this is my way out, you know. And, in fact, it did manage to pay for me to, to get out of home and get overseas and and, and move on, you know. Um, and also, you know, pay for things like my driver's licence mm. and stuff like that. Um, the way I describe it, Edwina, it's like a chef puts on their apron, they do their job, they take their apron off at the end of the day. I kind of see it as the same thing. I put on the smile... I do the book cover or the magazine story and I do it because there's a message I'm wanting to get out, you know. It's interesting that you say that, though, because one of the key parts of your brand is authenticity. Yeah. So how does that reconcile? Well, we live in 2018 and the current currency and dynamic is consumerism and capitalism. And within that framework... Um, I want to make a difference. That is what I'm 100% aware of. And that means playing the game to a certain extent. So I often wonder why I'm on Instagram. And really, it's to get people out of shopping malls and to go hiking. So I make it sunny and sexy and all of that kind of thing. And But people will notice I wear the same clothes over and over again. And that's something that I quite... I'm, I'm aware of because I, I believe that, you know, that message can become a, a really positive message and I'm trying to show people. So I know it sounds overly self-aware. It's kind, kind of things stop being overly self-aware when you've been doing them so long mm. and it's part of what you do. Mm. Yeah. And I don't want to preach to the converted. They know what they're doing. They've got their own thing going on. I want to have a conversation with um, everybody out there who's struggling to find a way. You know, that's kind of what matters to me. And if it means I've got to go and put on a face of makeup and, you know, appear on a magazine from time to time, and within that, within the story, I will share some values and some ideas and, and hopefully make the impact that way. Mm. Did you ever have a sense of the world opening? Was that something that yes. happened? Yes. I went off overseas at 18. I was meant to go over and model, but I put on 15 kilos instead, eating... Yorkshire puddings and drinking Guinness in well, the north of England they over call Christmas. It the Heathrow injection. Exactly. Don't they? I got a big dose <laughs> of it. And I think it was a bit of self-sabotaging. I was like, no, nah, I just want freedom. I'm over here now. I'm gonna take off and I and I travelled for a year just wandering around Europe. Yeah. Your your next big time overseas was in Santa Cruz as yes. a as a student. Yeah. You decided to study philosophy. Mm, and women's studies. Yeah. <laughs> 
Why did you choose philosophy and women's studies? Well, I started off doing a law degree because I'd got the grades and I felt an obligation. I was the only girl who'd got into sort of law from my high school and so I was like, of course, that's what I do. Um, and I hated it, absolutely hated it, um, and studied politics as well, which I quite enjoyed. And then I took off for a year and came back and just went, no, I... I I don't know. I, I don't know what drew me to it, but I loved it. I loved philosophy um, and women's studies. It just taught me to think. Mm. Um, and then I got a scholarship to go and study in Santa Cruz. Yeah. It was when you were in Santa Cruz that you got diagnosed as bipolar. Yes. What led to that? Well, it's a funny story, you know, because um, I was studying a graduate course. So I'd convinced them that I didn't want to do undergraduate and um, and it was called Philosophy of the Universe, appropriately. <laughs> it was a small um, title. It was Nothing a small title. Nothing ambitious in that. And it was my uh, rather large undoing. Um, the assessment was a 100% assessment to come up with a new theory of time. So... Um, that was my undoing. So I'd I'd come off um, antidepressant medication, and um, essentially it didn't turn up to school. I was living in a one bedroom studio. I hadn't slept like night after night after night. I'd get one or two hours sleep at five o'clock, and my OCD got through the roof. I spent the entire night pulling grains of dirt out of the carpet up and down in rows, and um, and counting and counting and fretting and unable to leave the house and then just did dangerous things like set the apartment on fire, jump down, like fling myself down a set of stairs, slept in a puddle, stuff that at the time I didn't think it was that weird but I tell tell it now in, you know, in a six-week period you sort of go, okay, that pointed to something. Was that about testing yourself? Was that about... Mm. Yeah, testing what the hell, like I needed to touch something, I needed to reach something, I needed something to burst through the kind of the fog that I was in, um, in my mind, and I needed expression for it. It was expression. It's outward expression, yeah, and it was volatile. Uh, and eventually my sort of boyfriend that I'd broken up with came and got me and took me home. Um, home to Australia? Australia, right. yeah, yeah. So I didn't complete the course and, yeah. So, so, so in this period of recovery... What did that involve for you? Was it medication? Was it lifestyle change? Was it OC? Was, was it... Um... It was a bunch of things, actually, yeah. I was seeing a hypnotherapist. He was quite pivotal in the Huff and Puff classes, would you believe? Um, he was 92 and I was his second last patient. His last one was my father. And um, he taught me a bunch of mindfulness techniques. Essentially, it's meditation, I suppose. Um, that really made a big impact. I was seeing a psychiatrist and I was on, I was back on um, the SSRIs, you know, this is sort of early days Prozac, especially when I went on it the first time. Um, so it was all pretty raw kind of, you know. Blunt, blunt instrument. Yeah, blunt mm. instrument to the head kind of stuff, exactly. Um, and then my beautiful boyfriend, George, at the time, um, he supported me. Right. And so I spent a lot of time lying on the bathroom floor and he would leave me there in the morning. I'd be there when he got back. And I lost a lot of weight because I got Graves' disease. So I was a very frail human being. So what was your first break in journalism? I ended up doing work experience. I was waitressing and studying a grad dip in professional writing down in Melbourne and my new life had started. I was fired up 
and living in a great group house. And uh, I did work experience at the Sunday magazine, which was the News Limited insert uh, on a Sunday. The editor was a was British, and she was, nobody liked her in the office. She was a real recluse. But for whatever reason, she looked up one day at the end of the and who are you and what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm work experience. She said, what do you think of the magazine? I said, well, your food and wine pages are really, really bad. And she said, well, come back on Monday and tell me what you think I should do. So I went and learned Quark over the weekend and I... Ah, Quark. Yes. Um, your young listeners won't know what we're talking about. <laughs> and reviewed a bunch of restaurants and redesigned the pages and came back and said, I think you should do this. And so she gave me the job as the restaurant reviewer. There you go. Mm. So, um, as I say, I was annoying but solved a problem. And then um, she took me under her wing and she got me to do more and more stuff. And in the end, I was doing the celebrity kind of features. So... I was flown to, you know, I'd go to Japan to interview Alicia Keys. I interviewed Gwen Stefani, Beyonce, you know, like I was the, only, I was the youngest person, I think, by 23 years in the office. So, you know, um, I was sent off to do the young The cool people. stuff. Yeah, the cool stuff. <laughs> and then I started writing uh, an opinion column, which, and I shared a page with Andrew Bolt on a Friday. And look, I'm well aware of the fact that I was the token female left-wing voice in the opinion pages, I ticked so many boxes. Um, and so, you know, I, I got a really good run. But again, I just used to send them in, they got published, and then they started paying me. Yeah. And then Cosmopolitan. Yeah, 2029. 20, and that happened because I was writing the opinion columns and the publishers up in Sydney um, sort of, I, for whatever reason, noticed the columns would get syndicated into Sydney quite often um, and flew me up. And really, I was clueless. I'd never read the magazine in my life. I'd only ever worn flat shoes, like, you know. Yeah, I I wound up um, as editor at 29. How was that? Oh, you know what? It was great. It was, for me, it was a job. Um, and I know, you know, some people go, how could you have come from, you know, like I've never owned a handbag, you know, in my life. I... You know, I, I I didn't straighten my hair and I rode a bike to work every day and things like that. So there were certain things I hung on to and I also employed a spiritual counsellor whose job was to keep me normal for the period that I was there. So I used to see her every Tuesday. So, yeah, um, Cosmo was a really great job. It was uh, I probably stayed there a year too long because um, at the end I developed Hashimoto's and mm. I went downhill really, really badly. And I and I, I guess I was manic for some of it and I lost a grip. This all leads to what you've described as your mid-30s meltdown. Yes. Which was kind of an emotional, physical collapse, right? Spiritual, everything, the whole, yeah, the whole thing at 34. Um, and I went into the darkness, the darkness. It was a, a, a prolonged dark night of the soul, really. And um, so much came out of that. So much funneled me into it. And when I was in it, it was hell. Describe being in it. What did you do? Where were you? I was living in Bondi in Sydney. Um, I had no work. By this stage, I get a little bit hazy. I had to go through the timelines and things like that when I wrote the book. But essentially, there was this sort of nine-month period where I didn't work. I couldn't. I could barely walk. I got that bad where I just couldn't even leave the house, um, and I just couldn't think. Um, I'd been told I'd never have children. Um, I'd put on fifteen kilos, and I'd 
I'd become an invisible person. Like friends, you drop off. You know, anyone who's had a chronic illness knows you suddenly, you know, you just drop off the radar, you know. So, and it compounds everything. Um, So, yeah, I was just in this horrible, horrible space and I didn't know how I was going to get out of it. And um, I describe a moment in the book where I'd been awake for three days and kind of I was in these revolting orange cookie monster pajamas, you know, flannelette pajamas. I think it was it was like July, you know, and it was a beautiful day outside and I sort of woke up and I knew that I was ready to die. Um, it, it, it's kind of a funny thing, suicide. I'm very careful about talking about it because obviously it can be triggering. Um, however, one way of observing it is that sometimes you reach a cul-de-sac of your existence and you the human mind can't find a way out. But then something saved me and it was just this tiny little gentle thought that just dropped in and said, hey, this could be a game. You could turn this into a game. It's like if you don't care about anything and nothing is left, you could just kind of enter this world and see what would happen if you just went out there with the clothes on your back and didn't give a stuff. And that's what I decided to do. There was a point in this time where you'd left Sydney, right? Um, yeah. You, you kind of, Sydney was a bit too much. It wasn't healthy for you. You were bored with it. You couldn't all afford of, it. All of that, not all healthy kind of reasons. Um, so I moved from that moment in Bondi and there's a little bit of tween and froing in all of this because off the back of that moment I got the MasterChef gig. Right, yes. In the weirdest kind of possible way. Yes, you and just... you might have to read about it in the book to sort of the absurdity of it, which made me just go, you know what, life's playing this game with me. Let's see what happens, you know. But being a television host wasn't particularly awesome for you, was it? No. <laughs> that's that's a mild way of putting it. Um, I... Um, yeah, it was a bad fit and also it, it was a role, there was a role that I was meant to be performing um, based on sort of my understanding of food and and so on and it didn't turn out to be that way. I was a sort of a, I topped and tailed the ad breaks so that the the portly men could get a pine for the rest of the period. The experts would be brought in after that, you gave a bit of colour at the beginning. That's right. And, look, everybody thought I should be really grateful and happy to have my mug on television. That was precisely what I was most uncomfortable about, um, you know, and I think one memorable moment in Hong Kong I yelled at the producers, why didn't you get a mop, put a wig on them, a pretty dress and press play? Yeah. You know, you don't need me here. Um, but of course, Edwina, you know, the press back then was I was fired and all of this kind of thing, which um, is fine. And you went to Byron. I went to Byron. I was a cliche, <laughs> <laughs> and lived in that army shed in the forest. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was sort of the start of a of a pattern of minimalism for you, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I didn't own a lot even when I was back in Sydney and working at Cosmo. I'd sort of accumulated my friend's couch and the rug and the bookshelf was from the the street. So when I left, there really wasn't. I gave everything away and had a I had a garage sale and gave all the money to this local school. Um, and so I didn't really have anything. I had um, a Toyota Corolla and I and everything I owned fitted in there, including my, my bike. I've lived with that and, and less ever since. 
But you've written a lot about the genesis of I Quit Sugar. So you were living in Byron, yeah. you had Hashimoto's, you decided to test this out as kind of an idea for a column, um, yeah. you know, writing about your experiences of quitting sugar, which you found transformative. Um, I Quit Sugar was born and then quite quickly it grew where it now has 1.2 million devotees. in 1.5 million, I think 113 countries, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I need um, to update that. Yeah. 12 e-books, 14 bake-at-home products distributed here and across the world and a multi-million dollar business with 23 staff at its prime. But I'm interested to sort of look at the ideas that underpin I Quit Sugar that are beyond the sort of personal ones, yep. you know, and I think that this is probably going back to you know, my background in women's studies and philosophy as an undergraduate. Yeah, right. I'm interested in the role of denial in I Quit Sugar and in the idea of dieting yep. and dietary modification generally. Mm. There's always been something quite virtuous about denying, right? Yep. And, and you know, you can go back to sort of anorexic teenage nuns in the Middle Ages and you can kind of carry this through, particularly in girls and women, this idea yeah. that if you cut something out, that's good. Were you sort of thinking about that or were you worried about those, how, how, how it could Very be Very aware of it. Very aware of it because of my women's studies background. I was the women's officer at my university and studied it and, and uh, obviously at Cosmo as well. I had to be accountable for a whole heap of body image messaging and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I was very aware of it. Um, at the same time, like if I'm going to be somewhat defensive and have put forward the sort of the rationale, the official rationale, um, which is helpful in, in many respects, is that um, sugar is a food that makes us very addicted to certain foods and it, we, it creates an addictive cycle in our brain which makes it very difficult for us to access our natural appetite. And I think that we are a culture of people who've lost our ability to know when we're full and when we're hungry. And in fact, we feel uncomfortable with both ends of the spectrum as a result. And so we're in this constant state of nebulous snacking, trying to avoid this normal, you know, satiation and, and, and then hunger. So um, my big thing is actually quitting sugar is the thing that will get you back to a balanced approach to food where your yeah, hormones are regulated and they do their job. They tell you when you're hungry. And anyone who knows anything about hormones is when you dysregulate one lot of hormones, it kind of tumbles down. And so then you have all kinds of issues with, um, and you know, autoimmune diseases, metabolic diseases and all of that kind of thing as a result. So in many ways, it is actually kind of a little bit of a silver bullet, right? Because it goes straight to the thing that's causing a lot of the original stuff in and around eating disorders. It's interesting because you did get a lot of criticism and you continue to get criticism around, you know, you're not qualified, you don't have a scientific background, you don't have yeah. a background in nutrition, you don't. So what gives you the right to give advice is, is really the common theme of the criticism. It was. It was very much in the early days. That has backed off because I think I held, I held, you know. The other thing is the scientists themselves working, the endocrinologists, the cardiologists, they didn't disagree with me. They invited me to their conferences. And so some of the leading white male scientists in this realm became friends and we kind of turned up at the same conferences and they have a great deal of respect. And look, did it bother me? I just, I knew how it played. I knew how it played and I knew that I just had to just stay sturdy, you know, and I didn't profess to be an expert. What I am is I'm a qualified journalist 
I'm a really good researcher and I'm a conduit. So I take the expert's information and I ensure that they're okay with it and then I pass it on to the masses. And um, I was very careful I wasn't draconian about it. There's a massive tendency, I think, um, for people in the public eye, and particularly women, to be stereotyped. And what you're describing really falls into that category, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's only really recently that we've started to talk about the mansplaining experience, right, that we get subjected to and, and things like that. But absolutely. And I, I yeah, I definitely copped it as a woman. And we are now far more vocal about the fact that any kind of uh, attack that people want to make is on your body. So my inability to have children was often used um, in, in some of the trolling. Um, unfortunately, I was old enough. I wasn't a 20-year-old with perfect skin and a 20-year-old's body uh, and as well as a 20-year-old's experience. Um, I, I was older. You know, so it meant I was a little bit more leather-skinned, you know. Sarah <laughs> Wilson doesn't need that. Well, that's right. That's right. Your work more recently has been about less waste, less consumption. How do you think capitalism's playing out in 2019? Oh, it's in full throttle. Um, however, there's an awareness that we've got ourselves into this cycle and we don't know where it's headed. We don't have another model. That's the problem. There's a lot of Jungian theorists and, you know, if Joseph Campbell was around, he'd be saying the same thing. Uh, we were talking about Russell Brand off air. He's on this kind of bandwagon. But a lot of the really good thinkers, unfortunately, there are not a great deal of them from Australia, but thinkers in sort of uh, evolutionary biology and uh, various systems, particularly from Europe and the US, where they've, they've had to question things probably with more urgency. Um, there is a discussion around the fact that capitalism has been our framework and everything has kind of stuck to that, our logic, our thinking, everything, right? It's starting to come a little undone and we don't have a new system that can allow for the frenetic pace of social media and and te the technology. It's all moving so fast. And previously we had ethical frameworks, so we had mythology, we had religions, we, whatever it might be, you could criticise them all, but they served a purpose at the time and they were appropriate for guiding humanity so that all our questions about who the hell we are and what we're meant to be doing and how we're meant to be working together and thriving together as a community, they kind of provided the framework. And uh, so capitalism is failing um, there and um, it's making our lives uglier and uglier. And I think, I don't know where it's going to head, but I'm fascinated. I'm studying it ferociously at the moment. Every book I can get my hand on and podcast and I'm, I'm loving it and I'm trying not to get too dystopian about it. <laughs> <laughs> when I was researching for this, I read a lot of articles and looked at your blog and the comments oh, you and poor thing. all of this. <laughs> One of the things that um, people just always say is you're an inspiration. That's something that, I mean, like, like, like it's, 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 it's kind of crazy how much people say, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, insp the inspiring people to, you know, how, how do you feel about that? I don't think a person can be inspiring, right? I think that what it is that you might kind of open up in another, that's where the inspiration sits. So I don't see my, like I do my own thing, right? And not everybody knows the whole thing. But I think that what happens is I do a, a, a stuff that probably just bucks the system a bit, you know, kind of opens up the wound, lifts the scab just enough for people to go, me too, or 
or whatever. And I remember when I was writing features and opinion columns back in the early days, my aim was always to try to say something that other people would go, that's exactly what I was thinking. Oh, she just happened to write it first, you know. And that's the aim of good writing, you know, is that people identify a part of themselves. So I think that that's a sign of how many people are really desperate to open themselves up. And if they just get sort of a little glimmer of recognition, because I... I am sort of a little bit every girl, you know, every, like, I'm not offensive to 60-year-old men or teenage boys, and in fact, they're my secondary audiences. Really? I'm not joking. Um, It's really strange. Um, Yeah, I think that I'm just offensive enough to make people um, notice and not offensive enough to kind of make people feel alienated, if that makes sense, you know, by what I have to say. So... I don't know that I'm inspiring because anyone who knows me would just go, oh, God, you know, but um, it's more that I think people are just really wanting to... Be inspired. Have scabs lifted. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sarah Wilson, thank you very much oh, for coming to finish and you on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was a really lovely chat. Thank you. Sarah Wilson joined us in 2018 for an event called Fixing Food. And the culinary theme continues in next week's episode with the vegetable champion of the world, Yotam Ottolenghi. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastering and additional editing by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan, research by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Blair Mitchell and Nerida Ross. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time. Mm